Hi everyone, I'm Michelle. Hi, I'm Tara. Welcome back to our podcast Books and Beyond with Bound where we speak to India's finest authors and find out what makes them tick. Tara and I are editors, podcasters, storytellers and through Bound we help you create stories and put them out into the world. So we also want to announce that we have started these amazing conversations on WhatsApp groups which are owned by Bound. Uh it's called Bound Writers Circle and our link is in the show note. You can join this WhatsApp group for conversations all about reading and writing, lots of resources and more. We have engagements every week and we have different kinds of activities that we do on this group. So it's a really good resource for anyone who likes reading or writing. Some of our members were also long listed for the Toto award. So there's a really great community out there. Make sure to join the WhatsApp group. and another group which is called Pod Squad which is all about podcasting and some of our members in the groups are from different fields like film dance art so do join us if you don't want to miss out on the fun links are in the show all right let's get to today's episode somebody i can't believe that we got on this podcast michelle and i have been he's been on our wish list forever and we're interviewing amitav ghosh oh my god so since we've announced yeah. In this episode, both our DMs and Bound DMs have been flooded with questions from fans, and we hope to answer some of those questions. Uh, I'm going to introduce him, though he needs no introduction. But for those of you who don't know just how accomplished this man is, he's won the Padma Shri, the Gyanpeet Award, two Lifetime Achievement Awards, four honorary doctorates. He's written over seventeen massively researched and nuanced books. and i think that all his books make readers stop and question themselves and some of his books have definitely changed the way i think about literature what about you michel yeah that i think we have to keep uh, keep a track of his accomplishments you know as the years go by because there's a lot lot more that he has to achieve he he's so prolific he comes out with work almost um you know every few years and i really like how his books have made me you know think about climate change especially how you know climate change is is, is slowly uh, deteriorating the sundarbans because it, it's it's a recurring uh, feature in his work or why do we even need to write about climate change i think all of these things i mean his work has made me think about all of these things different i especially want to talk about how we write about climate change because he is particularly talking about how writing about climate change yeah. has to have a paradigm shift um so i will give you an example of you know first i'll i'll tell you guys a little bit about his thesis and then i do want to get into his writing style because we both have so much to say about that so what he says essentially in his books is that uh the way that we have to think about writing about climate change has to differ because what he is saying is that you know and we must have all seen this is that either climate change is in the form of dystopian fiction or it's non fiction sort of bill gates's manual or things like that but is there literature literary fiction that engages with climate change as if it's a reality and not some dystopian future and that's sort of what we wanted to deconstruct today we wanted to deconstruct the whole idea of climate change and climate writing um and you know you can see this climate thesis in his books as far back as the hungry tide so in the hungry tide there is a scene in which uh, you know in the hungry tide is a book that in which nature is the protagonist where you know uh 
it, it brings alive a world in which you know it's not so much character driven as is the nature is the thing that is driving the whole story forward um and that's what he really tries to do in his writing is he tries to bring out nature in this way so there is a scene in hungry tide there's a scene in which uh, there's a cyclone that is ravaging the sundarbans and and as michel mentioned a lot of his work does does center around the climate change in the sundarbans so there is a scene in which there is a cyclone ravaging the sundarbans um and there are two people one is pia a researcher and there is the person who is helping her uh, who's a local of the sundarbans and they take refuge in on a tree trunk and all the while things are flowing all over the place there is flooding um and they don't know what's happening and there's a moment of serendipity where they look across and on another tree trunk they see a tiger and the moment they look at the tiger is the same moment the tiger looks at them and they both just look at each other and the tiger is just twitching its tail right now this isn't fantasy it's not dystopia it's not non fiction yeah. it's very much it can't be labeled or boxed, it's very much know? sort of yeah. bringing nature to life it's having nature be part of the narrative and what he also mentions is that you know maybe writers are afraid of writing about things like cyclones or like looking at a lion or a tiger because they do maybe sometimes come across as as tropes but what he does is his writing he's he makes all of these things very plausible because they are plausible part of our lives we cannot deny that all of us and some people in more particular are affected in their day to day lives by climate change so that is what he is really pushing for in his writing Yeah, no, and and Tara, the way you narrated that scene, I I just wish you would have gone on. I would have, you know, loved to listen to the rest of the book as well. Um, so, but today, actually, you know, though we are going to deconstruct all of this and we are going to talk about climate change as well, we actually spoke to him about his latest book, The Nutmeg's Curse, which tells us how you know the climate crisis has been brewing since long. It's not a recent thing. Since our lands were invaded, since we were you know colonialized, and he tells all of this through the lens of a nutmeg. How creative! Okay, I've like been following climate change as is I'm sure all of you guys, right? So the moment the book came out, uh, and yet another book that talks about climate change, I definitely had to buy it. Yeah, and I remember you pinged me, Tara, saying, "Michelle, you know this is what we need right now. This is like a bible for anyone who wants to really understand, you know, how it has gotten so bad." Uh, yeah, Tara, and it's also made me uh, more aware of writing around climate change because, because honestly, I have you know not been uh, following uh, at least consciously. um keeping a track of conversations of climate because it makes me very anxious thinking about how bad it has become thinking about how worse it's going to get so but this book really made me feel um comfortable just because of the way he has narrated the story like like it really made me understand you know what we've been through and it made me realize that it's important to follow it no matter how uncomfortable it makes you No, definitely. Like we all have to push each other out of our comfort zone. So yeah. I want to ask you. You know, I want this episode to be something where we focus on one the paradigm shift that we speak about and how you know people are approaching climate writing. Um, and the second the second section will obviously be about you know with featuring Amitabh Ghosh himself. <laughs> yes. uh, so I hope that you guys. um you know really enjoy the section about amitabh ghosh we actually recorded this part of the episode 
after we spoke to Amitabh Ghosh because we got so many more ideas uh, yeah. about how to think about climate change and how we able to deconstruct, you know, all the things that we've learned from him through this interview and through writing. So here goes. Michelle, you, you talked about how you were not aware and like because of Amitabh Ghosh, yeah. you became a little more aware and a little less anxious. So how has that journey been for you and where are you at now? Oh, wow. Yes. So um, also, Tara, you know, our conversations uh, before recording with him while we were, you know, discussing the script, while we were reading his book and all of that, I think that also made me a little more comfortable to to venture out and, and read more about it. Right. So when I was actually uh, consciously looking for work about it, I came across this um, anthology of poetry. Um, you know, I know that uh, Amitav Ghosh actually talks about literary fiction, but but I'm also more interested in, in seeing how writers engage with, with climate change in other forms, right? So I came across a very, very, um, uh, I would say eye-opening anthology. It's called Open Your Eyes Itself, where a lot of poets have written about uh, climate change and, and that anthology is just um, about that. So I think it is also called eco-poetry, which is, which is a genre in which a lot of poets engage with nowadays. And I also recently wrote a poem, Tara, which will appear in, in Silver Birch Press. So luckily, luckily it, it, it got accepted. And, and you know, the idea behind uh, the series, uh, Tara, is that the journal wanted all of the poems to come to notice of uh, Greta Thunberg uh, because of the whole uh, COP 26 summit that recently happened and you know everyone has been talking about it so what they wanted to do was they wanted her to know that there are artists who also engage with this at a a very um, creative level so you know hoping that that's so interesting that that, you know like you went from somebody who was not engaging with the subject to now because of these conversations actually actively participating and writing through it that is yeah. Quite, you know, True. I'm sure that Amitabh Ghosh would be proud. <laughs> yeah, like I, I myself, you know, I can't believe that this change has happened because I was always a silent spectator and now I'm happy that I'm at least doing my bit, even though if, if it's just a, just a, uh, you know, maybe it's just a creative endeavor, maybe it's not going to change something, but I do feel a little better than before. Okay, so now that I've shared, uh, you know, my relationship uh, with climate change and the way it's covered, um, We're also going to be discussing uh, literature around climate change, right? The different tropes, the way Amitav Ghosh covers it, the way other writers cover it. But before that, Tara, I want to know what's your relationship to climate change? Okay, yeah. So, um, you know, I've always sort of, unlike you, Michelle, you know, I've always sort of engaged with this topic and trying to figure out what I can do. So ever since I was a kid... I've always sort of been interested in it, like even from like the Captain Planet and all of these things, because we're taught how things are changing in school, right? And we see it right in front of our eyes. We hear all these stories in the news and we see it and and you don't know how the future is going to be. Um, But my relationship has actually changed over time because the more that I read about it, the more that I find, you know, people are doing such amazing things with technology you know, there is a company that is replacing plastic with algae. Uh, you know, there's so Ooh. many companies that are renewable uh, in India yeah. itself that we know, you know, right from organic soap, so many more people are aware. So my view has changed a lot since then because I see the awareness that is happening. And I do believe that, you know, maybe we will be able to transition into an economy that is sustainable, green. Maybe one day there'll be airplanes in which, you know, you can choose 
uh, an airplane which is completely net zero. Can you imagine that? So that has been my yeah. relationship. Yeah. Oh, wow. Okay. So that does that does make me feel a little more better than I did uh, some time back. So yeah, like obviously, like we've discussed how Amitabh Ghosh talks about climate change in 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 a certain way and what he prescribes for climate writing. But I wanted to know, you know, are other writers following this sort of prescription? You know, are they are are there any other writers engaging with climate change in similar realistic ways that are maybe not dystopian or maybe not nonfiction? What is you know, Amitabh Ghosh also. Uh, rejects the face cli-fi and we want to take that apart a bit so we really want to dissect this whole topic um so let's start with you know what other writers do you think michelle engage with nature and fiction in a way that uh that is sort of in tandem with the, the realism in which amitabh ghosh is propagating we feature these things Oh, okay. That does make me um, think uh, quite a bit. But I will say the first writers that come to my mind, uh, Tara, are Northeastern writers. So one writer is Janvi Barua, who wrote uh, who, her recent book is called Undertow. But I have been working, sorry, but I have been following her work for quite some time, actually, since I was studying in Bangalore way back in 2013. And and one common thread that runs throughout her book is the Brahmaputra uh, River. Oh, I just, I, I love reading about it. You know, the way she writes about it, Tara, is this quiet calmness uh, that the water holds and the way the water gives life to, 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 the, to the novel itself, right? Like, look at the metaphor. I mean, we know that the river gives life to a lot of you know fish or organisms and and to the ecosystem around it but apart from that i think it gives life to her novels itself yeah i mean because of you i read undertow and that the title itself and the river plays such a nature plays yeah. such an important part in a way that that i don't think we've seen much and i think that she's one of those underrated writers that people need to know more about you know and amdav ghosh says you know yes. we need more writing like this i want to say hey look at this book um yeah no and and she's you're right when you're saying she's underrated she's also uh the uh by the way she's also the judge for uh the commonwealth short fiction prize this year and i was really happy because you always you know you want uh, uh such kind of works to reach a wider audience right and i think i think now that she's a judge also you know a lot of uh, people who are submitting will read up on her work so yes uh you know this is we we, we recommend work to all of you but um tara there were other indian writers that you were telling me about as well right yeah so before we go into the other indian writers i want to speak a little bit about this whole thing of climate fiction um so what is climate fiction and why does amitav ghosh have an issue with it and also you know uh what climate fiction is climate fiction really that bad and what climate fiction have we read so right. yeah so um okay so my, my my thoughts on the on the whole genre tara is i've you know recently been reading about it um and i and what i've understood from it is that it always involves this dystopia right dystopia or or utopia right so you so you always imagine something where the where, where things are just the worst where you just can't come back from from something like this something like the apocalypse and i think you'll have more to say uh, about the apocalypse but all of these books which which are you know labeled as climate fiction they usually have such words and i think what amitav ghosh meant um is that you know this is not dystopia this is reality right so when 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 he's uh, encouraging people to write about um 
climate, he, what he means is write it as if it's happening, write it as if it's real. It's not an imagined world. What do you think about this? Do you think that hmm. climate change, this whole genre of cli-fi, you know, what do you think about this whole genre? Have you read any I, books um, about it? So um, I'll say in general, I, I stay away from, from dystopian books because it, it makes me, uh, you know, like you said, it makes you um, a little uh, uh, fatalistic uh, or it, it makes you, I would say, a little pessimistic about the way things are. So I um, generally stay away from this because I think it takes the whole thing to a whole different level, you know, by, by exaggerating it. But I do think there are benefits to having the genre. So if somebody is consciously looking to understand, for example, what kind of effect global warming is going to have on our planet, right? Like like in the near future, I think it's really good to create awareness around it. But I also see what Amitav Ghosh means. I also see, I understand what he means that if you box it into a genre, that means that every every everything else that we write, right? Like realistic fiction, they have nothing to do with climate. It's just, it's just writing about nature here and there. It's just writing about um, you know, maybe trees and plants and, and, and calling that, um, you know, and, and just uncovering the whole of climate through that. So I do see both sides of the story and I do see the, you know, the pros and cons of each of them. What about you, Tara? What do you think? And, and have you read any Wi-Fi uh, book? Um, I see what you're saying about, you know, <laughs> seeing like it through a sci-fi lens. Yeah. Um, and it was very interesting that Amitav Ghosh spoke about, you know, when people think of literary fiction, they think of literary fiction as in a very particular paradigm, in a very sort of person paradigm, as the person's internal journey, you know, it's always about that. But why can't literary fiction be about something different than that? Um, why can't literary fiction have nature as its core? If you put nature at its core, why does it immediately become climate fiction? Um, and I do agree with that stereotyping in a way, uh, because a lot of really amazing books that, you know, might be touted as literary fiction may go into that zone just because of the way publishers market and sell. Uh, so I think we need to make a very clear distinction between something that is clearly a dystopian world. Uh, an example of a dystopian world is I read a book called The Age of Miracles, where in the book, basically, it's centered around the premise that a day keeps increasing. So the sun keeps setting half an hour later every day. Um, and the whole world's ecosystem, nature, crops, everything falls apart. Now, that is very clearly not rooted in reality. And that is very clearly a dystopia. And it should thus be categorized as such. However, if a, if a person uses a trope of a flood or a cyclone or any of these things that, you know, some people say, you know, truth is uh, more fantastical than fiction, right? So if those elements are included, they should not be treated as tropes. I think I agree with that because, you know, those elements should be uh, incorporated in books more. Another very good example of this is Shubhangi Swaroop's Latitudes of Longing, in which the book is set on, in the Andamans. And it's set, you know, it, it's centered around a tsunami. And that takes center stage. Uh, you know, so it's both the characters and tsunami. So struggles don't always have to be internal for something to be called literary fiction. And that I think would be sort of very interesting if we saw more books like that. 
Yeah, uh, you know, Tara, that you mentioned the plot of, um, you know, Age of Miracles, right? Where the sun sets um, later. It actually reminded me of of what happens um, in the West. So around this time, around November, December, right? In the West, obviously, it gets colder and then there's less of sunlight. And I found this, I found this concept fascinating when I found out, you know, that they actually push back their clocks by half an hour to one hour to get more sunlight in the day. Um, so I, I think I'm going to pick up that book because it definitely sounds um, really interesting. Yeah, and another Indian writer that came to mind when you spoke about Shubhagi Swaroop is Janaki Lennon. And we actually interviewed her um, earlier because her book covers each, uh, you know, creature, each wildlife creature in, in a very different way, which I haven't read before. Like, like you know, uh, I think you do know and our listeners know that I love uh, stories about wildlife, about, uh, uh, you know, because I love watching um, the Discovery Channel, I love watching National Geographic. That book for me was was really eye opening. So, for example, there are whole chapters on on you know different creatures, like like something about octopus or, or something about you know um, chimpanzees or about insects, for example. So, I feel that you know uh, even though it's a non fiction book, right? If people read it, for example, once they start becoming comfortable with uh, with reading more about nature, be it animals, be it you know trees, and when we talk about trees, another book comes to mind is by um, Sumana Roy. Uh, and the book is How to Become a Tree. So if you haven't read that, please do. And I think books that engage with wildlife and, and botany in such a way will get readers closer to nature, at least closer than what they currently are. Oh, yeah, completely. That's such a good point that you made. And another book, now that we're talking about all these books, books are just flowing into my head. Another book that comes into mind is The Signature of All Things by Elizabeth Gilbert. And it's this beautiful historical fiction book. Um, it's about this character who was born in the 1890s. And she is obsessed with botany. She's a botanist. And it's actually about how she basically studies the evolution of mankind, you know. Um, and it traces that. And it really takes you through this fantastic ride uh, into nature. Uh, and that was one of the lovely nature client books that I really enjoyed. Yeah. And, uh, you know, all of these uh, conversations around, you know, different forms that are like, even like I was mentioning um, uh, nonfiction, right? So recently uh, at the COP26 summit, I was also quite intrigued by this panel that they had on journalism on, on climate. Because, you know, we, though uh, when we are talking about literature, it, it does involve, uh, you know, nonfiction as well. And I feel journalists are doing a brilliant job. So there are specific journalists to cover specific, uh, you know, things about the environment and they keep um asking for more people to join, you know, it's, it's a free registration. They say, you know, please join. I think, I think it's a brilliant way to make, um, like young, what is, young... can you give some examples of this? Yeah. So, so what I learned from that was that there are journalists who dedicate their entire career to just covering climate, right? So for example, it could be just how the way water has, has been disappearing or just the way the glaciers have been melting, for example. So, you know, that would be a niche for one journalist's um, um, career and another journalist would cover something entirely else, you know, um, for example, maybe uh, maybe how forests are disappearing, right? So, I mean, there's a lot to cover in climate and I feel that these journalists are doing a really good job because because journalism is also about reporting things as they are, you know, from 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 these places. So, it's, it's like a real-time um, reportage, which I, which I really liked. And another thing I noticed um, that I was reading because I was, you know, reading a lot upon uh, the COP26 summit and I saw that there are very young Indians, you know, who are fighting for 
for for climate um, change so there was this article by al jazeera where they've covered uh, five indians who who were doing something in their own way to to help um, the climate you know i i think that's just it's very inspiring yeah so uh, one among the five was uh, this girl ridhima pande okay so she's actually from uttarakhand and 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 through her work she she you know she brings awareness to what exactly happened in uttarakhand so there was this uh you know a, a cloud burst that happened which triggered a floods landslides you must have read about it it was all over the news and and she is a relentless uh, a person who just wants to, to you know to make the world a better place and i think i think as they say uh, the change starts at home she's trying to do that in uttarakhand from her homeland i so find that very inspiring so she raises awareness so what she does is you know she she does this tree planting drives then she's even she's reached out she's written letters to everybody including you know the prime minister and and she's she's honestly she's just a high school student who's trying to do her best so through any medium through letters through through you know planting more trees to attending seminars and she's only 14 tara like when i was 14 i don't know i wasn't aware of a lot of things but i'm so happy that that you know millennials are are doing something to change yeah so, actually you know my whole interest in climate change is is come about because of these mm-hmm. amazing stories that these journalists you know cover yeah. different beats they go to different places they uh, you know excavate these stories that wouldn't be excavated and there's so much material actually out there to collate um so yes there are people doing fantastic things yeah so you know we we all you know have heard about these journalists we know about these journalists tara but what has happened to me is after i've been following all these conversations i have now bookmarked uh, these journalists work and i'm consciously following each of their works and i just can't wait to see what's next you know of course that is making me a little more anxious but i do feel that being aware helps Oh definitely yeah. and it just yes. like it just makes me think you know as an editor about all the stories that are yet mm. to be written all the books that are yet to be written there's so much research that these people are doing you know the story of this little girl that you said yes. is so inspiring um there are books you know coming to non fiction we spoke a little bit about the wildlife book and how important nature is we spoke about journalism we spoke about these stories of activism um but i also want to speak now about you know the non fiction books which are sort of manuals so there's a lot of there are few manuals that are out by different publishers about how to live maybe a zero waste life or how to be a climate warrior um that is for the individual then there are books you know like the bill gates book about systems now i understand you know the systems books obviously but the books that are catered for individuals what do you think of them um for me see uh, if we if we, you don't know, talk about the self help genre uh, tara for me uh, they have not really worked because maybe because i am a big uh fiction fan uh, so when i look at non fiction for me i usually like narrative non fiction which are which are like stories so yes if you're trying to give me advice if you're trying to tell me probably there are better things to do better ways to live if you tell me that through a story i would i would really um, you know like that but that is just me but i do feel that india especially and i think there are stats to prove it that india loves the self help genre right people do love inspiring tales people people are i think conscious or self aware that that they need to bring out some change in their life in order to be more healthier in order to make the world a better place so yes i do think self help genres um help right yeah so uh, talking about books for individuals sara i think one book that i would recommend is uh, bare essentials because it it also tells you you know what kind of um 
products uh, could be harmful to the environment what you can do in your own way to make uh, things better so yes there are books that are changing yeah i mean definitely you know there's the fact that we didn't have these books before and now we do is a win um wow this has made me think so much and i think that and i can talk about this for hours and hours right because because there's a lot more to learn a lot more to to absorb i feel but we do hope that this conversation today um that covered you know different genres right so be it poetry be it fiction be it non fiction and the way climate change has been written in all of these forms and the way amitav ghosh has been vouching for a change in literary fiction we do hope that all of these things have made you think at least and have made you a little more um conscious or a little more aware of of climate change and what we are going through so yeah please do write in uh, with any insights that you might have that we might do to become uh, better individuals and make this uh, you know the world a better place now let's speak to avitav ghosh and find out more about his process so here's our interview with him welcome thank you so much thank you for having me and thank you for your very generous words so your latest book the nutmeg's curse weaves in history colonialism migration superstition and much more to tell us a sort of origin story of our current climate crisis and as you know a millennial i'm really really always been really interested in this very urgent issue so why did you choose the lens of the nutmeg to tell us the origin story the story of the nutmeg i i take it as a kind of uh, analogy for what is happening uh, in the world right now you know uh, the nutmeg uh, was a the nutmeg tree was a sort of miraculous uh, plant a miraculous botanical entity uh, that existed only on these tiny islands you know and uh, and their surroundings uh in maluku which is now part of uh, indonesia and for millennia the nutmeg uh the nutmeg tree brought wealth and prosperity uh, you know uh, to these islands and the islanders they became uh you know great entrepreneurs sailing across the indian ocean and so on but ultimately what happened is that the dutch arrived and they wanted to gain complete control of the nutmeg trade so what did they do they basically just wiped out all the islanders so in the end the islanders were destroyed because of their miraculous tree and i think in many ways you know one can read that uh, uh, as an analogy for what happened to our planet you know we were gi- we were given a beautiful planet uh, which is full of all kinds of miraculous things it's the only planet in our galax- galaxy so far as we know uh, that can nurture life and now we have we've really set about destroying uh this uh, this uh, this marvelous planet that we were gifted with you know so the nutmeg uh, the you know the banda islands were, the, were one of the earliest examples of what's now known as the resource curse you know that is a resource uh, that ultimately creates the uh, um you know devastation around it uh, as for example has happened with uh, with oil say in iraq and in or libya and uh, you know in the same way the uh, the vast, the gifts of the earth have really now been exploited to a point where the whole earth uh, is becoming subject to the resource curse right and and that's really really heartbreaking and i think i will never see the nutmeg uh, you know in the same way again <laughs> after reading your book uh, so you know so all the chapters in your book are obviously really really impactful but i think the very first chapter that sets the course of the book which is a lamp falls 
is one of my hmm. favorite because you know you talk oh. about this one small incident of a lamp falling and how it changes the course of history um and you've spoken about how you were haunted by this particular incident you know while you were in brooklyn during the pandemic amidst all these ambulance sirens and writing it so can you narrate this parable for our listeners and what did it really feel like writing this book amidst um, the pandemic it was a very very strange time and i mean you've lived through the pandemic as well so you'll be uh, aware of how strange this time was you know uh, so uh, it was a very strange thing i was just completely uh, you know i was in my study i was in my home and uh, you know everything was changing in the world around us I, you could suddenly tell i mean new york city and especially brooklyn is a very lively vivacious place and suddenly everything went quiet you know uh on the street outside you could hear a dog bark from blocks away except for when the ambulances were racing through and that was happening constantly you know all through the night and day and my house is not very far from um, uh one of brooklyn's largest hospitals and outside that hospital at that point there were refrigerated trucks you know uh for all the bodies of the dead because uh, uh they were uh, they were so many so it was a very eerie strange time you know and a time of also great fear you know as you will remember also from your own experience of the pandemic but you know fortunately for me i had been planning to write this book for a long time but i had other projects i just finished so i just finished uh, writing my book jungle nama uh, you know uh, in early march uh, and then just as the lockdown started i started uh, i started work on what ultimately became the nutmeg curse uh, a very little is actually known about what happened in the banda islands on those days uh, but i first uh, learned about what happened there from a book by a very very short book by an american historian and that's where i read about uh, the lamp falling and it really caught my attention and i thought well, you know uh, how does the falling of a lamp uh, lead to this uh, lead to this calamity and then I, i i really wanted to see you know what had happened in more in greater detail and i discovered that in fact the only book that really addresses uh, this history uh, is a book uh, written by a dutch archivist uh, from the uh, late 19th century and it was a book written in dutch but he had uh, he had access uh, he had access to uh, you know all the 17th century documents uh, and he put together a very detailed account of what happened uh, i suddenly you know on impulse i did uh, Uh, a google search and i found a pdf of the dutch book but uh, there it was so um, you know the book arrives on my computer i print it out i look at it but it's in dutch i can't read it <laughs> you know because i don't read dutch so what i did i suddenly just on an impulse uh-huh. you know uh i typed uh, you know some uh, some of the dutch sentences uh, into a translation app and there mysteriously uh, you know miraculously uh, uh something comprehensible appeared you know uh and then i began to do this uh, more and more you know spending hours the uh, days you know just typing in paragraph of page after page uh, of this dutch book until i was able to piece together with help from some historian friends and i love the way that you describe this in the book was this the most challenging part of researching this book not having access to the language really because it- it was just so frustrating you know that i couldn't read this that i couldn't read this book because and uh, but you know i've dealt with many languages so i didn't allow myself to be intimidated you know i just fortify persevere i'll be able to i'll be able to do it right and i think it's also a very uh, intellectual uh, challenge uh, in a way that that you know pushes you um forward so uh, you know you've 
your book addresses so many violent ways in which um, Europeans have invaded, um, you know, lots of places and how they've stripped uh, all these places of their original inhabitants, right? And one shocking fact that I learned, you know, being a Catholic was how uh, the mm. Lord Chancellor of England, like Sir Francis Bacon, and he justifies mm. all these massacres on these islands. And he says, you know, mm. it, it must have been willed by God, which is which is really shocking. So uh, I wanted to know what were the facts that you discovered uh, during this book that were really shocking to you? You know, when I got into the historical sources about what had happened in, uh, in, during the uh, colonization of the Americas, you know, when you look at the actual details of how, um, you know, how that that whole colonization played out. It's just uh, unbelievable. I mean, the scale of the violence is absolutely unbelievable. Uh, you know, because, I mean, uh, 70 to 90% of uh, the populations, of the indigenous populations, were just wiped out, you know, uh, uh, through this extraordinary sort of orgies of violence, you know. And it's a kind of, uh, <clears throat> it's a kind of uh, appalling thing because, you know, when in our history books, in our textbooks, whatever, uh, or, uh, and in popular culture, when people think of terrible, uh, uh, terrible violence, uh, they'll almost always say that, you know, uh, they, they'll say, oh, uh, the image is always of uh, Genghis Khan, you know, Genghis Khan when he was so violent and so on. But in fact, Genghis Khan never exterminated people uh, in order to grab their resources. Uh, he never wiped out cultures, uh, you know, flourishing cultures, uh, as happened in the Americas. Uh, in fact, uh, Genghis Khan and his descendants uh, were very good at assimilating, you know. I mean, within a, a couple of generations of Genghis Khan, uh, one of his uh, one of his grandchildren was the uh, was the emperor of, uh, was the Shia emperor of uh, Persia, and the other was the emperor of China, you know. And they were they were both completely completely assimilated in those cultures, you know. So really, what happened? I I think in the in the 16th century in the Americas in the 16th and 17th centuries is something unprecedented. Uh, you know, it's a, it's a it's a rupture in 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 history. You know, and uh, we can see that the scale of that violence uh, really has no match uh, anywhere anywhere. Honestly. But also, I do think it's important, you know, to uh, to understand that climate change and the way that it is unfolding is also a kind of violence. You know, it's a, it, it's the kind of mediated violence, if you like, that, that also un, uh, unfolded in the Americas. The violence of the Americas was was of a particular type, you know. It was not like the violence of the Second World War, you know, where you kill people with um, um, uh, with machine guns and stuff like that. That technology didn't exist then. So a large part of the violence uh, of the colonization of the Americas actually unfolds via the environment. You know, environmental changes uh, actually wipe out uh, people's uh, uh, ways of life. So the environment itself becomes, as it were, uh, an instrument of violence. And this is what we are seeing today. Uh, you know, the environment, again, has become, as it were, an instrument of violence. Uh, say for the people uh, in Bengal, you know, who are losing their lands, who are uh, losing their lives, you know, to uh, rising waters and uh, intensifying cyclones. Uh, climate change is not a thing of, uh, you know, greenhouse gas emissions and uh, or uh, any of those policy, uh, you know, policy decisions uh, that they talk about. Uh, climate change is a kind of war, you know. They're confronting 
uh, a form of ecological violence. And it's so visceral, you know, the changes that we are seeing and the changes that some people have to deal with on a day-to-day basis. Um, and I'm really interested in, you know, in, in great derangements. You wrote about this paradigm shift, which really made me think very differently about literature today. You said that mm. there needs to be change. Then literature needs to change the way climate is written, you know, versus focusing on the individual narrative. And Michelle mm. and I were discussing and, you know, we try to think of books in which climate was sort of front and center or the plot vehicle and all of the names that we came up with, either climate was discussed in a way in which the genre was dystopian or it was mm. sort of like nonfiction where it's, you know, the latest Bill Gates mm. book, which is suggestions and all of those things. <laughs> so yeah. that was such an interesting paradigm shift. So for our listeners and aspiring writers, can you tell us how you feel fiction should address climate change? You mentioned one way is to give voice to non-human entities. Can you elaborate on this? Yeah, I think that's really the problem. Uh, You know, the problem that arises in this period of the 17th century is that the earth comes to be thought of as dead, you know, by uh, by elite Westerners. And now, you know, across the world, uh, people have accepted this view that, uh, you know, elite people have accepted this view that the earth is dead. Farmers and fishermen uh, don't uh, accept uh, accept this view at all, nor do Adivasis and so on. For them, the earth is alive and the earth is filled with many kinds of beings. Uh, Adivasis in India think of the forest as a, as a living being, you know. And now we know that the forest, uh, that forests are living beings. You can't uh, compensate for the loss of a forest by pa- planting trees. Um, somewhere else because our forests are interconnected, uh, you know, are multi-species uh, entities, you know. So for me, I do feel that, you know, uh, uh, that the most difficult challenge facing us today is to do what, let's say, our ancestors did with uh, with epics like the, um, like the Ramayana and the Mahabharata and so on, which are filled, uh, you know, with the voices of non-human beings of many different kinds, you know. The Mahabharata begins with snakes and so on. Uh, snakes are such an important part of the Mahabharata, you know, and so many other kinds of beings. Uh, uh, so I think it's really, uh, that is the greatest challenge uh, facing us today, how we write about these uh, non-human beings of various kinds. But let's not forget that actually in modern India, in modern Indian literature, we do have writers who've done this. Uh, the greatest example is uh, Mahasheta Devi, you know, who uh, she was writing about uh, Adivasis a lot of the time. And, uh, you know, and many of her books actually do this. I mean, they give agency and voice to uh, non-humans. I mean, like a famous story, pterodactyl, uh, you know. Yeah. And uh, another Adivasi writer that I am reminded of is Hansta Savendra Shekhar. I absolutely love his writing because... Again, you know, the, mm. the stories are full of nature, everything comes to life. Mm. And, and you don't usually see that um, in stories that are set in, in, in urban spaces. Um, so you're talking, yeah. talking about fiction, you know, you've addressed climate mm. through fiction, you know, in Gun Island mm. and obviously mm. through your latest in nonfiction. So um, mm. what are the takeaways that you want your reader to take, um, you know, about climate from fiction versus nonfiction? Because they are two very, very different forms. They are different, but they're also not uh, so different. I mean, uh, you know, Gun Island, for example, was a novel. Uh, the Nutmeg's Curse uh, is nonfiction. But I, I think in many ways, uh, there, there are huge overlaps, you know. I mean, in Gun Island, I'm writing about migrants of a certain kind. 
Well, uh, particular instance of the crisis uh, that we see in the world around us, and uh, again, I've written about the whole migration crisis in uh, uh, in the in the nutmegs curse. So they are interconnected in many ways, and I think you know, in order to uh, in order to really write productively about uh, the situation that we're in, we have to forget uh, you know some of these uh, ironclad distinctions that we used to make in the past, you know, between fiction and nonfiction and so on. There always used to be a lot of overlap, you know, uh, between these uh, uh, between these genres. So, for example, uh, you know, a very famous example uh, I should say is. Uh, uh, the work of Herman Melville. I mean, Melville always, uh, you know, used huge amounts of uh, uh, nonfiction in his work. And, you know, he was also an ethnographer writing about places and so on. So Moby Dick is filled with information about, um, about, about whales, you know, and, you know, such information as existed at that time. And actually, the whole story uh, is based on, an, um, on a historical incident. So I, I, I think that we are going to have to, you know, loosen the boundaries as we go ahead. Another thing that I was very fascinated with is that I really like that your research involves speaking to people, traveling, primary resources. And in the Nutmegs course, you've spoken about Bangladeshi migrants who move to other places like Italy because of certain climate mm. conditions in the Bengal mm. region. These are climate mm. refugees, if you will. So could you share for, uh, for us one anecdote uh, from speaking to some of these Bangladeshi migrants, what kind of things were foremost in their minds? What were they running from? Well, what was very interesting is that actually I met many, uh, many migrants, many Bangladeshi migrants who, uh, uh, who, you know, told me the stories of how they left. And often it's that, um, you know, uh, they don't, uh, uh, agriculture has become impossible, you know, in their villages. Uh, because of uh, erratic rainfall, uh, because of changes in the seasons and so on. And that's increasingly the case, you know, I mean, uh, across Bengal and across India. So many of them uh, were forced to leave because of those reasons. But if I asked them about, <clears throat> you know, if I put the question to them, uh, are you a climate migrant? And none of them would ever uh, accept that, you know. And I was very struck by that because actually Bangladeshis are very well educated about cli uh, climate issues. Uh, the Bangladesh government uh, you know, disseminates a lot of information. And also there are many NGOs active in Bangladesh uh, that disseminate a lot of information. And actually we in India would do well uh, to study what Bangladesh has been doing in terms of both education and uh, resilience measures. So it was, uh, it was interesting, uh, you know, so talking to these guys was very interesting. I would say, uh, you know, are you a climate migrant? And they would say no, because it wasn't just climate. You know, it was again, as Margaret Atwood said, uh, it's it's not just climate change; it's everything change. And uh, there were uh, there were political difficulties. A lot of them had family difficulties. You know, quarrels with the family and so on. Uh, what was very striking, actually, you know, is that in these uh, uh, in these uh, Italian uh, migrant camps, there were lots and lots of uh, Bangladeshis and lots of also of Pakistanis, but uh, a very few Indians. You know, because Indians, I think, tend to, uh, the Indians who've been displaced by climate and so on, they tend to migrate uh, within India mainly, except for Indian Punjabis. Uh, Punjabis are, uh, are migrating on a large scale now, abandoning their lands and so on. Uh, but other than that, most, uh, you know, migration out of the uh, out of the Sundarban, for example, tends to be towards uh, either Delhi 
or Bombay or uh, Bangalore, you know, or the West Coast. But, uh, you know, one story I particularly remember uh, was this young uh, Pakistani boy. And, uh, you know, he was from the Punjab. Uh, I, I was speaking to him in Rome. And what happened to him is that he had a fight with his father, you know. But they're, they're, it was a farming family. He had a fight with his father, which is a normal thing. I mean, you know, that happens all the time everywhere. And in another in another time, he would probably have gone off to uh, to another village or gone off to uh, uh, to a relative and you know uh, spent a few weeks. And you know, his father would have said, "Tell and so on. And ultimately, he would have gone back, and you know, it would have been like that. But what happened in his case? is that, you know, he was sulking. So he went to the railway station. And at the railway station, he met up with a uh, with a whole group of migrants who were go- going to make their way to Europe. And he just fell in with them. Uh, and, uh, you know, he made this incredible journey, uh, you know, half walking, half um, uh, w- walking across uh, the uh, border to Iran, uh, between Pakistan and Iran, then crossing Iran, then crossing Turkey, being shot at by, uh, you know, by Turkish uh, soldiers and so on. Then finally he ends up in uh, in Rome. You know, so this is one of the ways in which the world has really changed, you know. Yeah, I mean, I can't imagine how, I just can't put wrap my head around it. Um, you know, I uh, recently reread The Hungry Tide. Uh, it's one hmm. of the first books that I read by you. And ah. it was just amazing the way that you brought the Sundarbans to life. Um, and then, you know, you have mentioned and you have depicted Sundarbans in other other books of yours, like Jungle yes. Nama and Gun Island. Yes. So I really wanted to know, you know, how have things changed in your portrayal and treatment of the Sundarbans from Hungry Tide to Gun Island? It's... Uh... You know, the Sundarbans is a, uh, uh, it's a landscape and ecology that is being absolutely devastated right now. You know, each of these cyclones uh, th- that have hit the Sundarbans region in the last uh, uh, 10 years, since I wrote, uh, 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 since the publication of, uh, of The Hungry Tide, has actually made the situation incredibly dire uh, for the people there, you know, much more even than I had imagined. So, uh, you know, Cyclone Aila, for example, was a devastating blow uh, to many, many people in the Sundarban. And every year since then, it's just gotten worse and worse. So, you know, uh, Cyclone Amphan uh, in 2020, uh, again, it was just completely devastating. You know, a lot of the land which had been reclaimed and which was uh, the fertile land, rice producing, uh, was submerged under salt water. Uh, Those lands will not be cultivable again for years, maybe. Who knows? So, you know, many, many people have lost their, uh, have lost their livelihoods. Yeah, definitely. I think it, it's something that is, uh, you know, that just feels like a, like a dystopian world. But unfortunately, it is our reality and it is something that we can't escape. Um, so we're going to our next section uh, where we talk about more about your personal journey as a writer. Yes. So um, can you tell us an anecdote um, from your college days, like when you were just starting out as a writer, you know, something that helps Hmm. you even today? Like, did you have mentors? What was it like? Well, one thing I did in college is that I started working as a reporter for Akashvani. Uh, you know, um, uh, there used to be a sort of, uh, there was a sort of, sort of youth channel, you know, uh, a local Delhi uh, youth channel. And I started working as a reporter there, uh, you know, just to earn a little money. You know, you would get a uh, 100 rupees perhaps for making a program. 
Uh, and, uh, you know, that, that really was a very formative thing for me, uh, you know, uh, because uh, I, it planted the idea of doing journalism in my mind, you know. So after that, uh, I, after college, uh, I joined the Indian Express and I worked there for, um, for quite a long time. I remember um, going to see a talk of yours, I think, when I was around 13 with my parents. Mm. Um, oh, really? And yeah, and you had mentioned how you studied anthropology and how that's helped you and that how you write every day. And that was sort of my mm. first introduction uh, to writers and their processes. I still remember it very, very well. One last question for you. Yes. <laughs> uh, what yeah. do you read for fun? Uh, oh, it, it changes all the time. You know, also nowadays, it's very rare that I have time uh, to read for fun. Uh, I just keep getting more and more people writing to me saying, uh, you know, uh, your book inspired, uh, inspired me to write this novel or short story. So now you have to read it. <laughs> so they, you know, I'm just deluged with manuscripts now and I can hardly keep up. <laughs> right. We can only imagine uh, what it must be like. So before we end, um, so there is just a quick rapid fire round where you'll just have to give us one word answers. So the first hmm. one is what's your favorite book that you've written and why? It's always the the last book. So in this case, it would be The Nutmeg's Curse. That makes sense. So that brings us to what's next? Well, I'm working on a book uh, uh about uh, the 19th century China trade, uh, the background of the Arabist trilogy. Amitav the teacher or Amitav the writer? Definitely the writer. I'm not much of a teacher. But on that note, thank you so much for being here today. Thank you so much for all your answers, your insights and the books that you've written. Uh, they really changed. They have changed the way that I think and they've added a lot to my life. So thank you. Well, yeah, thank, thank you, you That's so, so much. Kind of you. That's wonderful <laughs> to know. That's wonderful for me to know. So thank you very, very much. We hope you enjoyed this episode as much as we did. I never thought that one day I would actually tell him that I met him when I was 13 and the impact <laughs> he's made. <laughs> yeah, no, I think yeah, dreams do come true for me. You know, that happened when we spoke to Radhika Vaz, the comedian. Uh, because I was just watching her sketches online, you know, when I was in Bahrain and then we actually spoke to her, interviewed her. So yeah, I, for me, that was a very surreal moment. Talking about dreams come true, this entire season has felt like a dream, you know. We've got so many different kinds of authors, so many different kinds of topics. Uh, this time we did food writing. I'm a big foodie, as you guys know. So we spoke to Krisha Show. Yeah, and, and I feel, uh, you know, I'm still a child, Arandu, and 30. I adore writing for children, and we have done that with Sudha Murthy. Um, you know, I still read the books that, that I did as a kid, so, you know, lots of genres, children's writing. And our next episode is, is really thrilling because we will be, you know, taking these lives of the first women doctors ever and actually dissecting each and one of them, in, in you know, with Kavita Rao. Uh, she's the author of Lady Doctors and no one has, you know, really written about the real story about these women doctors before. There were no resources around it. So this is the first of first. And we do hope that this book would have a domino effect on every other story about women doctors. Yeah, absolutely. I love it when stories have domino effects. And to think that it was just a Google doodle of this doctor called Rukma Bai that led to hours and hours of spine crumbling research. <laughs> 
Yeah, and I can't wait to ask her all things medicine. So I'm a big medical drama fan. But anyway, um, you know, we we do hope that you read the book and tune in uh, next week. So thanks for tuning in to Books and Beyond with us. Yes, and Michelle and I, as you know, we are editors, we are podcasters, we are storytellers, and through Bound, we help you create stories and put them out into the world. We mentioned our WhatsApp groups in the beginning of this episode. As mentioned, we have WhatsApp groups for writers and podcasters where we have conversations, we share resources. Please do join the WhatsApp group. The links are in the show note. Uh, you can simply click and it'll take you to the group. And we are at Bound India on all social media platforms. We'll be back next Wednesday with Kavitha Rao.